Welcome to the Pre-Health Pod. My name is Lexi. And I was yawning. I'm Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) And And we're a podcast by students for students who've been through undergrad, are going through application processes, and are here to meet you wherever you are. I think that beginning definitely sums up everything we've been going through the last oh my few weeks. gosh oh seriously my. <laughs> of course I'd yawn I know I'm tired too I woke up at like 5 a.m today now because I have so many life updates but I want to hear about you first Sarah because your life update is insane yeah so I had my interview for PA school. Yeah. It was on a Friday. And that program specifically like tells you what they decide, whether you're accepted or not to their program this day you interview. So before leaving the interview, they let me know that they were accepting me to their program. So Yay! I am starting PA school in January. Yes, you heard that right. January of 2024. <laughs> so I have just a couple months to get my life together and get relocated so I can start PA school. And I'm so excited and so scared and so yeah. ready. Oh my God. I have so many questions. But first of all, a very important question. During your interview, how did they call acceptances? I'm like so curious. Oh. My gosh, this was the question that was like eating me alive. So we got there in the morning and they did like a little breakfast social. So all of the applicants that were interviewing that day could like eat breakfast and chat with each other, which was cute. But I was like, let's get this over with. (laughs) And then we had group interviews. So we were split up into groups of like five or six. And we did an interview with a couple different professors and faculty And then you like waited around for an hour while the other half of the interview group did that. And then you did your individual interviews. And so there was like a ton of downtime throughout this whole day where we were all just sitting in a room trying to make small talk. Also like still trying to like play the part because there were students and faculty Ah. watching you while you were in this room. So you're like trying to be bubbly and nice and happy the whole time when you're freaking out. But then you had your individual interview. Then we had lunch. Then they took us back for a student panel. So the PA students that are currently in the program answered questions. And then we all sat in the room and got called one by one. And you'd leave the room and you'd never come back. And like, we don't know. We don't know who got in and who didn't kind of a vibe. But um, yeah, so it was terrifying. And every time they came in to gather someone, we'd all get dead quiet and like sit up straight and like you could hear a pin drop. And then they'd be oh like, my God. Jessica. And then we'd all be like, just resume. Try to act normal while you wait for them to tell you if you got in or not. Oh, my God. So how did you feel when they said your name? I was so nervous. Yeah. And then just to like make it worse, I get in there, I sit down and the lady goes, so in a PA school applicant, we're looking for these things. These are the things we look for and it's not something we can negotiate on. So I hope you can understand. And like in your brain, you're like, oh my gosh, this is my rejection. That was so sad. And she's like, that we're going to accept you to our program. Oh my God. Because you meet all of these requirements. <laughs> and you know what I did? I literally said, that was so mean. 
Oh my God. <laughs> I literally said that to them. It just came out of my mouth and I was like, oh my gosh, don't take it back. No take backs. <laughs> Sarah, that is like the craziest interview story I think I've ever heard. It was so emotionally exhausting. Oh my God. I was like dead the rest of the day. Well, evening. Because it was from seven o'clock in the morning. I was there until almost 4 p.m. Did you go celebrate for dinner that night or did you crash? I crashed. I fully crashed because I got up at like 4.30 to start getting ready for this interview. So I totally just crashed. And then the very next day, apartment hunting because I'm moving. (laughs) Holy holy crap. Yeah, it's been insane. (laughs) It's been nuts. Wow. I can just imagine everybody sitting in that room. I can feel it in my heart. It's like causing me stress. I'm like, I can just see everybody sitting there just being like, oh my God. Like, I can't even imagine just what do they do? The people who were left over in the room, they just say, all right, y'all are rejected. (laughs) No, they call every single person out of the room. Oh, oh, okay. It eventually gets to the point that there's one person left in the room waiting. Because when I got out, there was a guy sitting like in the lobby area waiting for his ride. Yeah. And he told me that the people that were called first were rejected. Whoa. So like all of the people called in the first batch were the ones that were rejected. And he was like, yeah, they were all so pissed. But I was thinking about it and I guess it makes sense because you want them to leave. So you don't see the people celebrating in the lobby when you come down upset. Yeah. I I get why they did it that way, but terrifying. But why even do it in person at all? I don't know. I have taken for granted the ability to read a rejection letter in the comfort (laughs) of your own home i have taken it for granted oh sarah (laughs) there's some comfort in reading that rejection on your couch you know (laughs) so sarah in two years you're gonna be practicing right yeah that's crazy i thought about that oh my god i'm gonna be 24 and i'll be yeah a full-fledged pa working I told Alex, I was like, by the time I turn 24, I'll be starting medical school. And Sarah would have already like been a PA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and practicing. <laughs> like you're going to know more than me for a long time. <laughs> well, you can ask me if you ever need help. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Right. Uh, no, so it's are you, crazy. You still want to do ER, right? ER and gyne. I definitely want to do ER. I honestly don't know what my second subspecialty is. Since leaving the OBGYN clinic, I started working at a neurology clinic. And it's just kind of reminded me that there's so many different options out there. So, I mean, I'm just going to wait and see, I guess, what speaks to me the most. But at the end of the day, ER is where my heart is. So I know I'll end up in an ER somehow. Okay, yeah. Girl. So I got a new job. And... I worked closely with one of the PAs and she had just gotten out of PA school like three years ago. Yeah. And she like was telling me her experience. Like they basically just throw you into work. Like you just start practicing. And fortunately at our clinic where we work, our physician is very understandable. And like, he will definitely like work you hard and like test you and make sure you know what you're doing and will be critical. Like, provide constructive feedback of you and expect you to know what to do. And I was just like listening to all of this that she was saying like, yeah, it was a huge learning curve. 
but then it became like more and more second nature over the years. And and like, man, that PA route is quite an interesting career path. It's just like, you just start basically practicing medicine. Yeah. It's like, it's crazy. I mean, they just kept telling us over and over again, we've condensed the entirety of medical school into 15 months. So you have to be willing to sacrifice everything for 15 months. Who decided this? (laughs) So the history, I'll tell you, the history of PA school is actually because of the military. It was, yeah, it was basically created because there were a lot of military members who had learned so much medicine when they were in the field and had learned so much about how to treat fellow soldiers with the little equipment that they had, that when they Mm. got back home and were looking for what to do with the rest of their life, they wanted to do medicine, but they didn't want to do medical school because it's such a long process when they were like, I already know how to take care of people. I've been doing this for so long. I don't need to go through four years and then two years and then all of the things. And so a lot of them were turning to nursing But this one Navy man was like, we can do better than that. We have so much knowledge. We can do this just like a doctor can. So he created a PA program and it just exploded ever since then. Because at the end of the day, yes, it's not as intense as medical school. You're not getting as in-depth of knowledge of everything, but you're learning everything to a point where you can confidently treat someone. And I mean, for me, like... I want to work in trauma, do like level one traumas kind of a thing. So I know in my future, I will do like a residency and they have those four PA students that want to do crazy things like surgery or level one trauma. Um, The funny thing is it's elective. I don't have to do that to go do level one trauma, but I want to do that because I want to be the best I can. Yes, we should. So I'm interested in trauma surgery, but I should become a trauma surgeon and you should be my PA and we should work together. We should just do it. Why not? Yeah. Stop living on the other side of the planet and come closer. Let's go meet in the middle. I don't know. What's in the middle? (laughs) That's like, yeah, Kansas. I know. We could live. Where do you want to live? You still want to live in North Carolina after PA school? Maybe. Maybe Boston. (gasps) Ooh, Boston would be pretty. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So I could bet. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's my life update. It's crazy. Everything is amazing and stressful and terrifying all at the same time. Yeah. You got this, girl. And I'm here for you. We have this podcast to rant into the internet. Yes. So I hope we're Yeah. I love that. Oh, Sarah, I'm so happy for you. Thank you. When you told me that, I don't know if you know this, I like teared up a little bit because I just know how much you want this. I feel a little bit of it too because it's like someone in our community has made it. Yeah. We get to do it. It's huge. It's this huge. It makes it feel more possible too. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because like, I don't think I know any, no one on our team at the national pre-life community has gotten in yet. We're all like, like I'm the oldest of our graduated, the most of our leadership team is still in undergraduate studies. Yeah. So you're the first one. I know. First like NPHC acceptance. Oh, it's so weird. Yeah. I can't believe it. (laughs) 
<laughs> we just offended a past member. We're so I'm sorry. sorry. Please DM me. We're like, oh my God, you forgot about me. Anyway. But yeah. Well, yeah. So we have an awesome episode with Victor Abafe that we're going to transition to like right now. And I'll do the intro then, but he's an MDJT student. We love speaking with him. So interesting. So stay tuned if you want to be maybe a physician slash lawyer slash something in law. <laughs> All right, everybody, we're back with Victor Abafe, who is a first year law student at Yale Law School and a fourth year medical student at the University of Michigan Medical School, where he is a Dean's and Medical Innovation Scholar. Victor graduated from Harvard College in 2019, where he studied government, and Victor hopes to use his MDJD to work at the intersection of medicine, law, and policy to make the U.S. healthcare system more accessible and affordable. Victor spends a lot of time conducting research and policy analysis with regard to improving healthcare and surgical access. Victor recently served on the White House Health Equity Clinical Access to Care Roundtable and is a policy fellow for Third Culture Capital, a venture fund focused on investing in early stage healthcare companies. In his free time, Victor enjoys traveling to new places, running, attending music, festivals, and cooking. Thanks for joining us, Victor. This is quite the bio. <laughs> Thank you all so much um, for You're having me. You're not even a lawyer yet. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Well, yeah, thank you for joining us. I would just want to jump into my first question. How did you decide on pursuing the MDJD route? Yeah, I think for me, at the start of college, coming kind of, kind of story starts there in high school. So I was interested in clinical medicine, two reasons. I did a lot of AP sciences early on. I really liked like the molecular side of biology. I actually thought that's what I was going to like major in in college. So between my junior and senior years of high school, I shadowed a surgeon in my town and I really loved it. I felt like in the daily flow of clinical medicine, across most types of practices, you get to meet people from a wide swath, right? Of like the community in terms of different like backgrounds, people have like different stories. And I felt like as like a doctor, you can really learn a lot from like your patients, you know? And I feel like it's a special privilege to be able to be there with them and their families and their friends sometimes and some of their like most vulnerable moments. Right. So I felt like in terms of the daily lessons I got there, I feel like the appreciation it gave me for health. And also just I'm someone who likes meeting new people, hearing new stories. I feel like as a physician, you sort of have the privilege to do that. At the same time, I did a program called YMCA Youth and Government, which is like a mock state legislature. I like held some quote like statewide elected office. And then I started volunteering on like local political campaigns. I saw policy and politics is like a realm through which you can work with the greater community and hopefully come to consensus to advance, you know, policies and initiatives that really can help us improve society, right, on a wider basis and expand you know, opportunity. So coming into like my freshman year of college, you know, I was doing some government courses, some pre-med courses, some economics courses, delved in a little bit there. And I didn't know how I was sort of going to tie them together. But I interned on the Hill in summer 2016 um, with Senator Elizabeth Warren. And I remember going to a committee hearing on health equity with the former Minnesota Commissioner of Public Health. And he talked about the phrase I heard for the first time, the social determinants of health and how the social factors around, you know, the environment someone lives in. What do workplace policies look like for somebody who works? Access to food. Also baseline, you know, access to healthcare, that was going to do a lot more to influence your patient's health 
than even like the direct recommendations you give them, right? In the process of giving clinical care. And it's going to have a lot to do with how well they're able to sort of adhere to your recommendations. And he felt like people who are clinicians or want to be clinicians should use their platforms to help advocate for broader improvements to healthcare systems. So for me, I think over time, I found that through that experience, that settled me to sort of major in government to have the pre-medical knowledge, but also to think about things in terms of how do systems, you know, influence not just our healthcare policy, but the way our policies, our economic systems work more broadly. And then my mom, she's a family physician, and we often talk about a lot of these things around like social determinants and, you know, how they impact her patients. Over time, I felt like it seems like physicians who kind of work on the ground, taking care of patients, have one language through which they view healthcare. I felt like a lot of those in law who oftentimes create the policies, whether you're talking about drug policy around yeah. property, how we pay for care, they have a very different language. So I felt like with the MDJD that I could work as a language translator at that intersection oh. to be able to advocate for various changes to our healthcare system. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. And it sounds like you started out with an interest in medicine and then you really got involved in policy, but you still like stuck back to that interest initially in medicine. I also, my degrees in microbiology. So I also love molecular biology. That's what I did my research in. So definitely agree with you there, but really quite interesting. And so you just finished at university of Michigan, right? And you're going to, you're, yeah, I have so many questions. (laughs) Because I just was looking at your bio again, because I listened to Lexi and I was like, did I hear that right? Yeah. You're a fourth year medical student and a first year law student. So I'm on leave right now. From oh, okay. I'm going to be at Yale here for the next three years. I'll graduate in May, 2026, June. I'll be back in Michigan doing my sub-internships, which are like your tryouts yeah. for residency. Um, then yeah. I'll that last year. That is crazy. Wow. Are you worried at all about the switch from law back to medicine for internships? Like, how are you kind of navigating that and trying to stay prepared for that still? Yeah, I guess, right? Time will tell. The record will show when I'm a fourth year. Yeah. <laughs> I plan that out well. My plan now is to take these first few months of law school to kind of get the flow of it, right? It's its yeah. own language, you know, really get down how to review these cases efficiently and sort of legal writing, which outside of other realms of writing I've done is its own way of doing it. I think around the winter, my hopefully plan, you know, here at Yale, go shadow some of the ORs. There's also like a Haven free clinic here that we can yeah, uh, yeah. part of, we can provide uh, legal services because it's a medical legal partnership or at least assist the lawyers in providing those services because I'm not a lawyer yeah. yet. Right. <laughs> but I hope through there also, you know, go volunteer in the clinic just to kind of keep my skills going. And then I guess on the X's and O's, I took step two at the end of July. So okay. in the new year, I'll start hitting some flashcards, maybe some questions again, just to, to keep it fresh. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. That is such a huge <laughs> undertaking. How does your mom feel about this? <laughs> it feels good. She encouraged me. I think honestly, okay. I was considering that. I think my mom's a very, I think she's someone who thinks that anything is possible. I think that we only limit ourselves, right? In yeah. terms of when we think about how can we serve our community? How can you know we help make the world a better place? We should be very expansive and very ambitious there. So she actually seen like my interest in sort of like policy and government and medicine through that first idea of like the MDJD. And I think initially, you know, I think I was intimidated because 
you don't have like many MDJDs. And I think when you talk to a lot of people, they'll say like, whoa, that's like a lot of years, this. Um, But I think what I've seen is that it's, you will get older, right? Time will continue to move. I think Mm -hmm. the question is, how are we using that time? Are we pursuing our dreams? And I think by extension, doing what we can to hopefully help shape our community, shape our world in a more fair and just way and giving ourselves the tools, right? To be active participants in that. Absolutely. I'm just curious, have you found like other MDJD students that you've like kind of been going through this journey with, or do you feel like you're kind of alone in this path? No, there are definitely a few, I think like um, along in the journey at kind of around my level and even undergrads, you know, who have told me that they're interested and it's been fun kind of talking to them. Yeah. giving them some advice. Yeah. Wow. There's actually two out here. He's decided he doesn't want to do medical residency, but he finished his med school at Mount Sinai. He's a okay. second year at Yale Law School. And there are a few MDJDs I've met. Some who I think is now one who is the chief health officer for City Block Health, a company wow. to address social determinants needs. Personally, used to work in terms of improving uh, our care system in the carceral system. Uh, Dr. Cameron Matthews, um, she was when I was in my gap year saying I want to do an MDJD, it was amazing to chat with her on the phone to kind of like get her advice. I think another model is somebody named Dr. Rahul Rajkumar, who I believe works in insurance now for Optum, but his story is interesting. You know, he thought he was going to, from when we tried to do like global health justice work, but a guy at the time, former senator who became President Obama, started his campaign. He was in law school. He got involved there and started doing health policy work and then, you know, worked within the government around policy. So it's really cool to hear different stories and sort of different ways people have like used this degree. Yeah. And it seems like not a lot of students go this route. Wow. I have another question. Can I ask another question? (laughs) Yeah, Sarah, go ahead. I'm surprised. (laughs) No, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm just really interested in this path. Something that like I feel like we kind of struggle with as like pre-PA students is you can't really let the schools know what your full plan is because the ideal candidate in their eyes is a student who wants to practice in primary care in rural medicine and if you like start to talk about wanting to be something in some other specialty they get a little nervous about you as a candidate and that can like make it so that you don't actually get a spot in a PA school so I'm kind of wondering if that kind of mindset applies at all to this? Like when you were applying to medical school, were you worried about presenting yourself as an MDJD student or do they still look at that the same and like, oh yeah, that's going to be a great student for us? Yeah. I mean, I kind of did them in silo. So I did the med school application process during my gap year. And then my first year of med school is when I applied to law school. I mean, I think that how would I put it? I think it's really important, right? To be honest to yourself in terms of who you are, right? So before med school, outside of like my senior thesis and a research internship I had at the Urban Institute Health Policy Center, I didn't do like a, a lot of formal like health services, kind of like health policy research. But I knew when I started writing a lot more before med school and then kind of seeing how health services research is like a way you can kind of look at policy, analyze how it's going to go. I think when I articulated, you know, my interest in kind of like research and how I engaged in there, I didn't even know the term health services research, to be honest, when I was first applying to med school, I just thought it was like health policy research. But um, I mean, I articulated, right? That's the type of research I would do. I'm not somebody who was going to be like in the wet lab. The reason I say that and that I do think you do want to be in a place 
where you, I think by presenting yourself in the most authentic way, you'll be in a place where you will find mentors and supporters, right? For you to be the best version of like yourself. At the same time, I think it's when you're at each level, I think it's important to show how your vision, right, is going to be supportive and will advantage that institution, right? That you hope will accept be a part of the community, right? I think it's a two-way street, right? They need to support themselves, have the resources, right? That create the doors that you want to go in there. But I, I think, you know, there are people who kind of do, you know, these processes um, at like the same time. I think the biggest thing is while being honest to yourself with each thing you're applying to sort of focus in terms of how your skills, your experiences, and your vision is going to be furthered by doing law school or doing med school or people who do the PhDs or the MBAs or the MPHs and the whole suite of other great degrees. Absolutely. Yeah. What was it like? What was it like <laughs> taking the LSAT during medical school? I gotta ask. So I, I did it during my gap year. Oh, uh, smart. So I had a little bit more like flexibility um, yeah. in that time period. What yeah, do you think you know? was more difficult, the MCAT or the LSAT? Sorry, Lexi, I'm taking over. Sarah, <laughs> whatever. So, so I actually did the GREs. When I applied, okay. um, they started allowing us to like use the GREs. I think all your T14 law schools then took it. So when I was thinking oh. about doing LSAT or GREs, I heard your GREs was like a lot like the SATs, which like was already okay. used to kind of did that. Yeah, so um, much like the SAT. I think the MCAT's a lot more involved, right? You got a lot more... Yeah. Um, content you've got to get. I think the GREs, right? You learn your vocabulary, practice kind of like your writing, kind of get that formula going and some math stuff. You're ready. I I think with the MCAT and then when you do the step exams, it's not just getting the content, but then it's the application. That's what you're really tested on, which is a challenge. I think it's quite rewarding once you get the flow of it. Absolutely. (laughs) They're still working on. Okay, Lexi, you can can take the microphone away. Okay. (laughs) All right. No, thank you, Sarah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you again for joining us today. You were quite a remarkable human being. And thank you for going into this MDG JD route for those of us who do not want to do that. (laughs) We need people like that who that, can be that language translator between medicine and law. And so down the line, what is your long-term goal with this career? Would you go to residency and then practice for a while and then like become a practicing lawyer or would you want to be like a an expert like a chief medical officer or something like that what are your thoughts on that yeah i don't have the particular like role carved out i think for me i do want to go to residency that's a, i think i yeah. i view myself as somebody who wants to be a practicing physician who uses the law as a tool to you know improve policy and what would you mean by that do you mean like participating in advocacy days at like your local state capital or at the Hill and like lending your advice to politicians and your thoughts on health policy nationally or locally, or I even being the politician, like Victor for <laughs> president 20, what? I don't know what year it would be. I'd vote for you. <laughs> I, um, I grew up in North Carolina. I mean, I love North Carolina. I love the Tar Heel state. Um, I know I want to go back home when I'm done training. So awesome. I think for me, I think really getting involved in like state healthcare policy, right? And a lot of yeah. the stuff that's going on there is how I really want to like use my um, law degree. When I was a yeah. senior in college, I had the chance to shadow Dr. Mandy Cohen, who was our HHS secretary, now the U.S. Yeah. 
leading the CDC. And I just think it's so amazing in those roles. You know, you work with the public health community, you work with the business community, you know, you work with the public sector, you know, to really advance public health in your state. She did a lot of great work around the pandemic in terms of, you know, the response. But I also think the big thing is in terms of um, helping to maximize the trust that North Carolinians sort of had. I think, you know, in the response to the pandemic, because I think you can often have the science, right? You can have the X's and O's, but if people don't feel like listen to and they you're incorporating what they have to say into, into the what you're implementing, that's a little tough there. I think, yeah, public health work at kind of like the state level in, in North Carolina, I think that would be the dream and, you know, working tangentially and along with people, you know, I mean, public service there would be fantastic. Um, yeah. And- what can us undergraduate students do to get involved in health policy and potentially be competitive for this MDJD route? Yeah, I think the number one thing, right, is you always got to, you know, I think it's kind of like, quote, like eat your vegetables, right? And that like, yeah. have that plan for <laughs> standardized tests, do the very best you can to get the very best scores you can, you know, look up what are the requirements, right, that you need for whether it's PA school, whether it's med school, law school doesn't have formal requirements. But if you think there are certain courses that will kind of help you get towards there, if you have an interest that you want to articulate doing that, then I think once you kind of hit the baseline requirements there, I think find what it is that like you care about. For me, I think, you know, policy, you know, working along and in some cases advising people in public service, I feel like that gives me a lot of energy. Things where I get to work with people, that makes me really excited. I think for some people, right, you have some people who are, you know, have at my age, they've started their own biotech companies, their own like medical device testing companies. If you're an entrepreneur, you know, go do internships, go hang around people who do that, right? Find people who kind of live and breathe that thing that you do. I think that's a big thing. I think it's also important that I think when you're kind of doing these dual degrees or these intersections where not as many people have done it, so there's not as much of like a blueprint, I think to bring some experimentation to it in that like try different things do different types of like internships, even if it's not necessarily along your same line, right? And I I think along with that, I think is meeting a lot of like different people, right? On campus, beyond campus, who have kind of blazed the trail or maybe a similar but slightly different trail, right? So people are similar in maybe mission, but slightly different than you and how they've approached it. And I think when you hear these different stories, you get these different Mm -hmm. experiences, you start seeing some themes that repeat themselves. And I think you start to see the things that really give you joy, the things that kind of like resonate with you. And I think just kind of go with that because I think when you go with that, the puzzle pieces for you will really start to like fit together in a puzzle and you start to create a puzzle that I think will be like really unique to you. I think along with that too, is that I think definitely be open, right? To like different forms of advice. But, you know, if you set a pathway you want to do, and I think sometimes when not many people have done it, I think you're going to have people who will like cast doubts. And I don't think it often comes from like a place of like malice, but I think you should also be steadfast in time, in terms of like your vision and in terms of like your goals through the stumbling box, you know, just kind of like ride with it. And I think a practice that's kind of cool to have is sometimes I think I say, what is it like professional, kind of like um, personal and like academic I think sometimes when I you try to like set, well, I was at my best in college yeah. when I would set these like semester goals, right? Like even, like, oh, you know, I want to run this often a week, right? I want to kind of, you know, this is kind of like mindset I kind of want to have in terms of how I might respond to negative things or thoughts that come into like my head. I think kind of set that for a year. You kind of set, you know, that like semesterly, yearly, maybe five-year kind of thing. And yeah. I think 
and give yourself chances to, to pivot. But I think when you kind of do that, it helps give you like direction. Um, yeah, yeah. That's appreciation. I know that was such a struggle for me. Early college years was trying to figure out what I liked. Healthcare related. First generation student. First of my family to go into medicine. I'm like, I don't know what I like, but I really like this idea of medicine. And it was hard to find a direction of where to go. And so I feel like I participated in activities that pushed me in directions that I luckily absolutely loved. And then other activities that I just didn't really vibe with. And so I moved on from those and did some other stuff that I directed me in this direction. So like, for example, my research lab, I joined my freshman year. I just joined because I thought it was initially interesting. I didn't know if I'd like it. And I absolutely loved it and stayed all three years. But then I participated in, let's see, what's another example? Oh, I joined just some random club at college that I thought would be fun. And I just didn't want to do it. And I quit that semester. But that's okay. You know, you just find your niche and then stay committed to the things you love. And then med schools will reward you for that. Because commitment is probably one of the most important aspects of a medical school application, showing that you can stay with something that you also have a passion for, for a long time. So yeah, thank you for sharing that, Victor. I want to ask you, with your legal expertise that you've had with, well, how long have you been in law schools for? Week four here. Week Week four. four. All right. We'll see how you answer this. But what is one thing you would change about the U.S. healthcare system? Okay. One thing I would change about the U.S. healthcare system, I think the biggest thing that comes to mind right now, I think, is how can we, I think, sort of better align value, meaning the outcomes you get for the care, with the resources that are kind of like being put forward. And I don't just mean that in the sense of kind of like the broader value-based payments we're moving towards, but I think more granularly in that, you know, when we talk about drug pricing, right, people are paying, I think, a lot more than is necessary for like prescription drugs. But I also think as hospital systems grow larger and larger and larger, the consolidation, you're having, I think, a divorce between the value in terms of what you get. And I think what you're paying is like rising a lot more. And I would say the way that I would kind of try to move us in that direction right now, and I think there are a lot of initiatives is sort of ushering, I think, a lot more transparency, right, to the process in terms of like, you know, what does it cost really for like this lab test like you're paying for? I think that, you know, you should have like a lot more transparency in terms of like outcomes that you get at different medical sites with different like um, providers. And also with like the research meeting, I sort of had like right before this and that, you know, discussions is kind of, you know, also as we're talking about like equity right now um, is also when I think a lot of healthcare entities are sort of um, discussing their moves towards equity. I think we also need to like see the receipts, right? We need transparency. How diverse are like your clinical trials, right? Truly. And, you know, when you're doing a trial and you're saying, you know, let's say, you know, this medication you're coming with is meant to like treat Alzheimer's disease. In terms of the markers you're using there, are there clinical outcomes that are really linked there? And have those outcomes be shown to be the case in a diverse population? So I think we should have more transparency in our healthcare system as a means to bring the resources we put with care in line with the value we get for our healthcare. I so agree with you. So one of the things I did to prepare for my PA school interview is I did a lot of research on 
like public health issues and what's going on with the government versus healthcare. Cause I knew I was going to get asked something and something I stumbled upon was this thing called baby friendly hospitals. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it, but it's something that they just started like super funding. There's like $16 million like being dispersed to these hospitals that are (laughs) baby friendly. And the whole idea of baby friendly is that there's no nursery that the babies go to. So instead of mom going to the room to rest and recover and baby going to the nursery, baby goes directly to mom's room with her. And it's supposed to promote breastfeeding. Yeah. Okay. Now here's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Clinically, it's bad for baby and mom. Like I was reading all about all of these different clinical studies that are going on that are showing that this is having adverse health effects for both mom and baby. Mom's not getting the rest she needs to actually heal and recover. Baby's not getting the nutrients that it needs to actually grow and do well because mom's milk supply hasn't fully come in yet. So I think this is absolutely crazy and I can't believe it's a thing because even though the clinical studies are all showing it's not good, they just what's it called reimbursed dispersed I don't know 16 million dollars like it encourages these hospitals to become baby friendly because they get money even though it's not working interesting so how do we fix that (laughs) it made me really mad when I learned all about it I was like this is terrible and I think social media is kind of promoting it too because this whole idea of yeah, I went to a baby-friendly hospital and baby's in my room the whole time and look at how amazing this is and I'm breastfeeding. What about the moms who can't breastfeed? What about the moms who don't want to? What about the fact that it doesn't actually make that much of a difference and you can get just as much nutrients from formula? Like, how do we fix this, Victor? (laughs) A lot lot of thoughts, right? We could have a whole conversation on that. I think the big thing is as individuals, right, within the healthcare sector, right, more broadly current future individuals us here, I think is having a commitment to like honesty, right, and whatever we're promoting. And I think also a commitment to looking at the evidence in terms of what we're doing. So, you know, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you've got to engage in experimentation. Then you kind of collect the data. I think as like the data comes out and if it doesn't support the conclusions that we originally made, I think being willing then to adjust right? Based on what the data tells us. So I think, yeah, just like humility and a, and a willingness to kind of like adjust the methods through which we're going like uh, towards our uh, goals there. And I think to your point, actually on social media, I yeah. think it's really important um, in the medical and science community for us to kind of take things that I think are kind of formulated and quote the ivory tower and translate it right in common speak in the way like we speak each, each and every day. And on, I think- uh, I forms of communication that we use, right? Whether that's social media, whether that's like TV, because even us a lot of times don't have a lot of times to delve through a lot of like these peer reviewed journals and to read all the paragraphs. So, you know, let's kind of give like uh, the TLDR and translate it for the broader public so that everyone has kind of the table to like debate around these decisions we're making and how we're sort of doing research around the policies that are in place. Yeah. I follow a lot of board certified social media influencer physicians and they've just that was a mouthful (laughs) i know i had to say board certified they're not quack doctors yeah no doctors i looked them up they're just growing exponentially on instagram and i'm like oh maybe i'll do that when i'm a physician but anyway it just seems like they are just constantly combating on social media 
against this medical information. And one thing that I love that they do is they do these like reels about a recent journal article that came out that they're passionate about in their field. And they do their own TLDR on this like five second TikTok. And I like learn so much about whatever topic that they're talking about. And I just find that so interesting. And I'm like, I wonder if there will be a way where Instagram or maybe like another app will form where it's just these physicians who are trustworthy, who can like share the right information instead of people going on Reddit and people going on like non-board certified social media pages. I think there's a need for that, for a place for people to go to. And I think for like websites like mayoclinic.com is a great place. But then there's other websites where it's like healthline.com sometimes isn't the most trusted source, even though a lot of their articles more recently are being reviewed by physicians as they say on their pages, but that mainstream place where people can go to and get their trusted information. I feel like there's a lot of polarity in our country right now regarding that. Yeah, no. Anyway, food for thought. (laughs) The work that you're doing here, right? The work that both of you are doing here to kind of uh, facilitate conversations through your podcast. I think that's like a big start, right? I think that's really amazing. Thank you. I think you've got other people like Joel Burvell, a fourth year medical student at Washington State. He makes these like short little reels on like Instagram and he's kind of been focusing on like health equity, right? And kind of like the history of the medical system and sometimes taking current, a lot of current issues and and putting them in like a broader context. And I feel like he's done an amazing job, I think like engaging people and in a very like um, exciting way. So I think there's a lot of work being done and org to help with uh, this is our shot hashtag this is our shot kind of worked especially through like twitter and social media to kind of help provide medical professionals with the tools to have conversations right around you know questions people had related to the COVID 19 vaccine kind of when it first came out and i think like broader like um uh, medical um information so you know i think um the best approach you know i think to misinformation i think is having like more speech there and i think engaging with speech that is um informed uh, by the science. Um, But I think, you know, listening to one another, having conversations, and I think to the broader issues of like polarization, I just think um, the more I think we can kind of root these issues in stories, in real life stories. And I think that's the strength that medical professionals have is they can kind of help elevate the voices of like their patients, right? And I think the voices of like the understanding right and and give it a broader platform and help for it to inform you know policy and broader initiatives we use in society i think the more that we kind of center it on the individual and what they've gone through i think the better off we'll be and i think we'll be able to kind of like bridge these gaps because if you talk about like a medical debt for example right Mm -hmm. that kind of doesn't change whether you're like a democrat or a republican or a libertarian or a vegetarian right i think these are all issues that like affect us Um, a vegetarian Everyone has different ways to categorize themselves. Yeah. (laughs) Vegetables are good. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you again, Victor, for joining us on the podcast. We loved everything you had to share. And I just find your route, route, whatever they say, so interesting. I personally am very interested in going into health policy. I'm not thinking of getting a JD, but who knows? Maybe I'll decide that freshman year of med school. Is that feasible, would you say? Like, is it common for people to get into medical school and they're like, oh, I'll do the MDJD or the MD MBA available at the school? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you can apply okay. anytime, right? Your first or second, third year. I think you have people who become full practicing physicians and then decide to go back to get their JD or to get their MBA. So I yeah. think it's it's possible. And you don't have to have a dual degree either to like uh, work in like healthcare policy. I think you've just Absolutely. got a passion and an eye for the issues. Yeah. So Victor, if people want to find you, if they want to ask you more questions, get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that? You can hit me up on uh, my Twitter at Victor Abafe. So at V-I-C-T-O-R-A-G-B-A-F-E. I think my, that's my same name on Instagram. And you can also, if you have any questions, shoot me an email, uh, which is my first name, last name at gmail.com. Awesome. awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you again for joining us. I feel like I learned a lot today. Thank you all. Yeah. I really love the work you all are doing. Um, I think this is really cool. It was a lot of fun. And um, I hope you all have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you so much. This podcast was produced by Ari Rosenthal, Lorelai Edmonds, and Aditi Galande. You can find our conference on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at National Pre-Health Community or MPHC 2020. You can also find our wonderful podcast on Instagram at PreHealthPod. Find all of our events at our website at www.nationalprehealthconf.org. That's C-O-N-F.org at the end. And please like, leave a review, or tell one friend if you liked our podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.